The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, shortfiction at Bain.com, discounts on books by an SF master, and part two of DJ Butler and Tim Powers' conversation about Stolen Skies. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It is a pleasure to have you along. I am your podcast host and Bain Associate Editor, David Afshirod. This week, we bring you part two of Dave Butler's engaging and far-ranging conversation with Tim Powers about his new Vickery and Castine novel, Stolen Skies. But first, the news. Head on over to Bain.com for this month's free short story, Flops, by Michael Merceau. The Deal of a Lifetime. Living with her abusive father in the slums of Battersea's port city, Inga is used to taking care of herself, as well as her younger siblings. At 10, she's already done more than her share of living. So when a woman from the powerful Sinclair Maru family offers her and her brother and sister a chance to get off-world, it seems like the deal of a lifetime. But escaping a rough existence is easier agreed to than accomplished. That's Flops by Michael Merceau, and it is free to read now on Bain.com. The story is set in the same world as his Bain book's debut novel, The Deep Man, which is out now in trade paperback and ebook formats. We're ringing in 2022 with discounts on all Gordon R. Dixon ebooks. For the entire month of January, take $1 off all Bain Gordon R. Dixon novels and story collections. Books like Wolfling, None But Man, Sleepwalker's World, Gremlins Go Home, The Hoka Series, and more. These discounts apply wherever Bain books are sold, but hurry, the sale ends January 31st at midnight. And that's it for the news. Now part two of DJ Butler and Tim Powers' conversation. So, uh, so, uh, so casting, this is where we we're at the beginning of the book reminded or, or we're taught if we hadn't read the previous books, right, the other books about her ability, because uh, she she looks into the immediate past. And now this, this all this kind of, you know, hey, let's think of an explanation for these phenomena, right? There's an you, you postulated uh, kind of intelligences that are involved. And she sees, uh, she sees yeah. one. Um, and uh, and and uh, and it's and and it's horrifying. What what does she see? <clears throat> what she sees is um, kind of a ghost of these alien things when they um, sort of quote die unquote. They f- fall out of their extra dimensional being into actual physical mass. And they mimic uh, humans, uh, the inhabitants of this physical world they find themselves in. And early attempts, early uh, mimicry uh, led to the sort of 
caricature alien we always see with the big head and the big eyes and the skinny limbs. And that was actually a fairly good representation since it's a completely alien form to them. But more recently, I say, they have been able to comprehend the way a human brain comprehends its own physical form, which leads to distortions because the human brain is uh, connected by nerves much more extensively to areas like the hands, um, the tongue. Yeah. Uh, we have much more, much more nerve endings and awareness in those areas than in, I don't know, the surface of your chest or something. And so their current mimicry of humans reflects that. And so it's, it's more accurate in a sense because it more accurately reflects the way the human brain sees its own body, but it results in this grotesque image, uh, physical form of a creature with huge hands and big eyes, uh, but very minimal um, arms, legs. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a startling apparition uh, yeah. to see, but um, logical from the point of view of the aliens. Yeah, it's a big shovel-handed monster. Now, there's an interesting kind of thematic echo here, right? In that it's a bit like a flatland map of humans. A flatland map is not inaccurate. It's just that a map is always made to communicate certain information or from a perspective. Right. In fact, um, they call that a cortical homunculus. If you go to Wikipedia and look up cortical homunculus, you can see images of the human body the way the human brain is aware of it so it's got giant hands and lips and tongue uh and it's a terrible looking thing uh but but yeah in a sense it's a more accurate picture of a human body not yeah. a very useful sense but uh right uh not the sense being has the virtue of being grotesque uh yeah it's not it's not it's not useful from the perspective of a surgeon who needs to operate but but right. for someone who needed to who was or, going or to operate tailor. the machine from the inside yeah or from yeah. a tailor <laughs> right uh yeah that's interesting now look i'm i'm this is probably not the last time i'm going to come back to this kind of clerical analogy but like one of my thoughts was you know the the traditional the conventional biblical first words of an angel upon appearance are always fear not which right. strongly implies they are terrifying. Right. In Old Testament, New Testament, it's always the first thing angels say, don't be afraid. Yeah. Right. Uh, whatever I look like isn't as scary as, as you imagine. Right. So, uh, so this is interesting because this is the basic, the driver of the book is these extra dimensional beings have, in a sense, fallen, right? In, in a sense, because we're talking about higher geometries, uh, and uh, but they even and they died and they become material and as as uh, now their ghosts are here uh, and and their dead uh, bodies are here on Earth uh, and they're sort of left straight lines from a flatland perspective where they crash landed right, right. and the uh, 
Uh, and the ticking clock, good thriller at some point near the, near the middle, if not earlier, acquires a ticking clock. We're in trouble. The whole thing blows up when X happens on Friday night, right? Right. And, uh, and, and you've got one. So tell, tell us about what's the ticking clock here? What's going to happen that may end the world? Well, um, since they see us the way we see Flatland, uh, they're able to sort of bend over and look at um, a limited uh, picture, which for us is our complete reality. And um, it's as if we're all flatland creatures on the surface of a pond and they can splash into the pond, which we see as disruption. And But we don't see the thing that crashed into the pond. We see the ripples and splash. Um, and so what I postulated, and, um, I asked David Brin about this, uh, very respectable, genuine, hard science fiction writer. Uh, I said, our forces, electromagnetic gravity, uh, the strong nuclear force, all have force carrying particles. Uh, for electromagnetic, it's uh, virtual photons. Uh, gravity, it's postulated gravitons. And for the strong nuclear force, which holds protons together and neutrons also, it's uh, gluons, which is a subatomic particle that physicists take seriously. And it occurred to me, since these guys are approaching us from a direction which is outside, they might be able to divert those force carrying particles for their own ends, their own extra dimensional ends. So that from our, in our reality, uh, the force particles simply go away, cease to exist because they're now existing somewhere else. And being deprived of those in localized areas, electromagnetism, gravity, uh, even the strong nuclear force are gone. And so you might float up off the ground briefly. Uh, electrical things won't work. And more to the point, protons and neutrons have been de de uh, deprived of what holds them together. And David Brin suggested that uh, the physical universe would not permit that and would instantly reassemble them and would have to draw energy from the surrounding in order to um, reassert the existence of our basic particles. And he pointed out this would be an endothermic reaction. They would have to uh, derive energy from the surroundings in order to sustain their existence and therefore the surroundings would become cold. Uh, and I thought, yeah, that is such a cool idea. Uh, not just they have hijacked the force carrying particles, but what would be the effect on us 
if our reality was suddenly deprived of those. And um, I'm sure a real hardcore physicist um, or even maybe a college physics professor could say powers, that's totally impossible. I'd say, well, try it out. Uh, you don't, you don't know. Uh, it might. Yeah. So really, it, really, that's the basis of a lot of science fiction. You know, faster than light travel, anti gravity. Sure. Um, you think, well, you've got this device, okay? Uh, like E. Smith's uh, inertialess drive. Oh, okay. Inertialist drive. Good. Right. Carry on. <laughs> um, so, so fantastic. So this, the ticking, I love this. The ticking clock is these creatures are, are going to leave. Yes. And Which they're going to yeah, result in the heat death of earth. Right. It's, yeah. Yeah. They, um, they got trapped because they're very, uh, deterministic and um, not really self-aware, they're mutually aware. Uh, any, quote, one, unquote, of these creatures is aware of itself only through another one's awareness of it, as if I could only uh, be aware of myself because somebody else is aware of me. Um, in fact, there's a book by a guy named James, The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's over on my shelf over here. Yeah. And God knows whether he was correct or not in his theories. But um, I like the idea of, in his case, early humans hmm. not really being self-aware. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, kind of getting any sort of self-awareness only as kind of a echo side effect of others being aware of them. Um, so I said that what trapped these aliens and snagged them and entangled them with earth was encountering free will on our part. Free will to them is a complete contradiction in terms. Uh, logical trap um, and so they found themselves snagged here and when they become lethally self-aware toxically self-aware that's when they die and become and fall into our physical world <clears throat> um, I've always thought free will is an inexplicable phenomenon. Uh, in fact, uh, in the first book, um, Alternate Roots, it occurred to me that if you have stationary free wills, like several people on the side of a freeway, with moving free wills going past in the cars, it's parallel to, um, I think it was Faraday who first noticed that if you spin a magnet inside a coil of wire. Hmm. So you've got moving electrons inside stationary electrons, you generate an electric field, an electric current. And I thought, okay, well, maybe free wills do the same. Maybe stationary free wills and moving free wills are like Faraday's 
stationary magnet and coil of wire. Why not? And therefore the LA freeway system, big right. complex channel network uh, of moving free wills throws off this kind of friction. Uh, yeah, it's a big generator. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is this is the this is the the plot of alternate routes, but but it, this these 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 manifest as ghosts, right? Uh, yeah, which, it, uh, uh, it 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 generates um, since it's free wills that are doing this, and free wills are a violation of natural law. It generates a kind of field of ex insanely expanded possibility, so yeah. that things can happen in that field, which ordinarily are impossible. Like at one point, as a sort of meter, uh, you set up a jar of water with a string hanging over it, but with a gap between the bottom of the string and the surface of the water. And in that field, the water will arc upward, drops will spring up to the dangling string. Um, and I think arcing was a very good word to use there. Um, so all through all three of the books, really, um, free will is a problem, is uh, a violation of natural physics. Yeah, which uh, which is very interesting. Uh, and the the uh, you know the solution. Uh, I, I do want to respect some spoiler limits here, but the solution from the protagonist's point of view is not to surrender their free will, but actually is to embrace it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, use uh, use the expanded uh, possibility, uh, the the outside of the ordinary rules aspect yeah. of it. Um, yeah. In fact, it's interesting that a lot of um, scientists and philosophers recognize the fact that free will is a big problem for uh, workable physics. And so a lot of uh, current scientists have um, done experiments to prove that in fact, we don't have free will. That uh, I might decide to pick up a cigarette or not. And I think it's me deciding. They'd say, no, no, that's a delusion. Actually, it was as inevitable as the location of a pebble after an avalanche. Right. The pebble might think it chose to wind up where it wound up, but actually it's all physics. Um, you had no more choice about lighting this cigarette uh, than a rock has about where it falls. Yeah, which is, which is a, it's interesting because that feels very much to me like a uh, first semester philosophy 101 question. And in the second right. semester you realize Oh, well, in that case, your argument is also determined. And uh, yeah. so why should I care about it? <laughs> yeah. uh, Bertrand Russell wrote a book, um, I think, called Science and Religion, in which he said any notion that our physical actions have any connection with our mental processes is a delusion. And I wanted to, like, throw a cup of coffee in his face and say... <laughs> don't blame me yeah it's physics uh, that adam's got to go where you know newton right. and niels bohr say they got to go 
Yeah, and you, and you you should you shouldn't have a negative mental reaction either. It was just a mere physical interaction <laughs> right. here, no yeah. connection. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's always struck me that free will is a nice uh, element to put into um, fantasy novels because it it kind of is a supernatural effect. Yeah. Uh, unless we buy the idea that in fact like Bertrand Russell said, our actions don't actually have anything to do with what we do. Yeah. So it's very, it's very difficult, I think, for a sincere thinker to get around free will. Yeah, because um, otherwise, Shakespeare had no more volition in what his pen wrote than right. he had control over like frost crystals forming on his window. Right. And ultimately the Big Bang wrote Hamlet. Yeah. Um, so now, yeah, it's it's fun to play with this fictionally. Yeah. Uh, now, now I'm not done talking about plot, but I have to make another theme comment here, right? So okay. So so this is a story, right, in which we have something like fallen angels that are on Earth, and the catastrophe is these things are when they when they when they when, when they have their resurrection, they'll they'll undo the work of creation. They're going to suck the the heat you know, uh, out of the planet and, and, we are, and we are defended from this by this roving priest and a nun. So here, here's my question is, 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 do people ever give you credit for being a Christian writer? Do people talk about you like this? Yeah, sometimes, um, since I am a Christian writer, specifically Roman Catholic, uh, one of my books, uh, Declare, um, which had to do with Russian and British spies in the Middle East in the 1960s and genies. Um, Mount Ararat. Mount Ararat, right. What actually is up there? Um, I did say that baptism had a genuine effect, effect on a person. Um, but it was... Uh, that was largely because uh, the book involved um, Kim Philby, mm. famous uh, mole spy who was the head of counterintelligence in the English Secret Service, but also was a Soviet mole. Um, he was, his father was very careful not to get young Kim Philby baptized and Kim Philby was always fascinated with Mount Ararat, had a photograph of it in his office when he was head of station in Turkey, and many times quizzed Catholics about like the sacrament of confession. He seemed very uneasy about it. And I wasn't making this up. This is all in the research. Yeah. Um, and so it was a logical plot device to have baptism um have a real supernatural effect and a couple of uh, reviewers said powers has written a catholic tract um <laughs> and i know it was only because they happened to know that i am in fact catholic sure and so they fired at a position they presumed i was occupying right but it was a supernatural adventure novel it right. was about genies right. <laughs> It was not. It was not um, an effort to convert people to Catholicism. Yeah, 
any and, more than I suppose the exorcist was a Catholic tract. Right. It took right. Catholicism as true and worked out a plot. But I don't think William Peter Blatty would say that he had written uh, uh, apologetics right. work for Catholicism. Right. So and and uh, Norris Norris stolen skies attract. Uh, no, <laughs> it's, but it's it's interesting to me the waiting some of the weightiness of this of the themes I think comes from the reality of the of the themes, you know, and the way that they are important to real human beings, free free will, uh, the interactions with heaven, uh, and the potential for catastrophe uh, that come from that. And I I uh, so uh, so interesting. I. It, it feels to me like you should get more credit for being a Christian writer in a Tolkienian sense, uh, not 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 the writer of chick tracts uh, uh, kind of right. Um, I mean, if you're messing with supernatural anyway, yeah. um, and my stories are supernatural adventures, yeah. uh, every now and then you are going to come up against that. Um, and I would, of course, emphasize that they are supernatural adventures. There's absolutely gunfights car chases grenades absolutely uh, ah. absolutely I've, I've always thought low-flying helicopters are important any any movie that has low-flying helicopters is substantially better because of it <laughs> uh I, I love it well let's get a little a little bit more back back on kind of the adventure so so there are um there are sort of two non-romantic couples that we follow through this story, uh, uh, Castine and Vickery, uh, but, um, but there's also uh, Rayette Yoneda, uh, and there's, um, and I didn't jot down his real name, it's Anatoly uh, something. Tacitus. Is the well, name he goes by. But we, yeah. yeah, we know Miss Tacitus, Tacitus uh, Bonach or, or Banach or something. I just have to spell it. I don't have to pronounce it. You don't it. have yeah. to. Okay. Tacitus will do. Yeah. Um, so tell us about these characters and how they get entangled uh, with our on the grid, off the grid uh, heroine, heroine. Well, both of them. Um, Yoneda is a very orthodox um, naval intelligence officer involved now in this uh <clears throat> investigation of ufos and in the course of the book she comes to realize that there is something to them they're not simply a mass delusion and also to doubt her employer's purpose in getting involved with whatever these extraterrestrial things are so she comes to largely fall out of her orthodox obedient uh you know team player persona and uh tacitus was a gru uh russian spy um what they call illegals which is all a real thing um it's it's a russian agent who is planted in the united states with a fake identity and has no contact or connection with the um, official Soviet presence in the country. He's not um, under diplomatic uh, cover. He's not in the right. State Department or, and, or embassy. In fact, I love it. He's being funded because they ship him from Canada 
uh, rare Barbies and comic books and things to yeah. sell on eBay is how, now, is I, how he funds himself. I think that's a brilliant way for uh, illegal agents to get funds. You send them, yeah, Dunhill Pipes, uh, Arkham House books, and they can sell them on eBay and make money. And therefore, it's uh, a hidden way to pay your agents. Yeah. But he was a very, like Yoneda, he was a very orthodox uh, Soviet citizen, uh, spy, um, who, with the fall of the USSR, and the changing nature of uh, the GRU and his longtime residence in the United States has caused him to fall out of orthodoxy. Um, <laughs> and the GRU really has in the last 10 or 20 years become a much more crude, um, clumsy agency than it was in the classical days of the USSR. There have been a number of um, really uh, clumsy assassinations or assassination attempts in the last few years. What was the name of the guy? Uh, but a GRU assassin had a nerve poison in oh, yeah. a perfume bottle and uh, yeah. somehow doped this def defecting Soviet agent and his daughter and they both managed to survive near thing, but the clumsy GRU agent- Put it in a trash bin. He dropped the yeah. perfume bottle in a trash can and some poor British citizen found it and gave it to his girlfriend and both of them died. Um, so I think Tacitus was correct in finding the GRU not really what he signed up for. He signed up for gathering intelligence, uh, you know, tactical information, not ham-handed assassinations. And so Yoneda and he both find themselves through no fault of their own, um, outliers now. Uh, no longer the, uh, it's not that they, as one character says, I didn't abandon the USSR, the USSR abandoned me. I stayed where I was, the ground shifted under me. Um, and it was fun to um, construct him and have him move through the plot. Uh, at one point, of course, uh, he's given the author the offer, why don't you defect officially? Because then we'll give you a new identity, um, this, you know, employment. Yeah. And he says, well, I don't think you guys are okay either. Uh, I, I don't want to defect from one agency I mistrust to another agency I mistrust. I'm going to go on being... Uh, a non-entity. I'll get a job at Jiffy Lube, you know. Oh. Uh, I'll just stay out of the way of all of you. And she tells him, you know, you won't be able to stay out of their way. Yeah. Uh, one or another of them will inevitably find you. Yeah, this is a, this is a it's Yoneda who makes him the offer, right? Or right. Uh, trying, and it's it's part of her kind of trying to work out her own. Uh, what do I do now? 
she yeah. starts out basically as the minder of uh, Ingrid, uh, where she's sent to go. She's the original, you know, the naval intelligence dictate is, hey, you know, take us to where Victory is and point him out. That's basically what starts everything. Right. And Yonate is there to keep her honest. Uh, and uh, and uh, and Tacitus is <laughs> basically tracking Vickery. Uh, so the, the two of them come in collision that way. Um, and 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 then really it's the supernatural events that make those uh, well, especially Yoneda, right? Because the supernatural is not really new to Tacitus. We know Tacitus from back in uh, from back in uh, alternate roots, right? Because uh, he uh, I don't think so. Do, but he, oh, was he not in book one? Because he he, uh, he has the same ability. He, oh, yes, right. Yeah, he, um, we find out he participated okay. involuntarily yeah. in the same event that happened in Alternate Roots, yes. Okay, but he wasn't a character, he wasn't a point of view character or anything back right. I hadn't read that book for a few years. Okay, so. Um, I either. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So uh, the uh, but but basically, when a crop circle experience happens to the four of them, uh, Ioneda and uh, 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 Tacitus have to really start choosing, and it's not an immediate choice, but it takes them takes them some time. Meanwhile, the ONI, you know, low flying black helicopters uh, uh, are chasing them. Uh, we also have the GRU that is basically appears as a um, clumsy assassins who are just trying to blow everything up really uh yeah they simply want to eliminate everybody who has every american yeah agent who has knowledge of this yeah yeah uh and uh yeah fantastic let me let's let me ask a little bit about magic um you, you already touched some some on this uh the ability that uh that uh, these these three <laughs> Tacitus, uh, Ingrid, and and uh, Vickery all have Castine and Vickery uh, is is I, I, it's quirky from the point of view of like a fantasy writer. It's very specific. It's very um, distinctive. There's a lot of very kind of quirky, distinctive magic. Nobody's out there as a wizard with a book of spells with a hundred different powers he can call right. on, right? Um, yeah. So, like for example, uh, ghosts. Yeah, we encounter ghosts. This the book is only peripherally about ghosts. Alternate Roots was much more about ghosts. Um, but when we when we encounter ghosts, uh, the 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 advice that Vickery and Castine give is always oh, seen. You know, if he's a ghost, you know, start counting, right? Uh, start yeah. doing math. Uh, what is it about ghosts and math? Well, ghosts are um, a product of a consequence of that insanely expanded possibility field. Uh, it's non-deterministic. Uh, and if you can impose hard determinism on a ghost, it contradicts his existence. And uh, so if you say two times two is four, four, uh, four squared is 16, don't take my word for it, check it out. Um, you're imposing uh, the cold hard reality on a thing which <clears throat> is the contrary of that. And if they comprehend it, it unmakes them. 
And um, in fact, in the first book, uh, the way they got out of that weird afterlife was by doing mathematics, uh, which sort of repels the field of indeterminism. And so, um, yeah, if you if you can tell a ghost and get its attention and say, look, pay attention to me. Two plus two is four, and it's not anything else. It's not five, it's not a hundred, it's four. The ghost is, finds its existence contradicted. Um, which uh, again is the base, as, as a consequence of um, free will being a supernatural effect. Um, you got determinism and free will, and they're not comfortable together. <clears throat> yeah. And that's interesting, right? That sort of puts the ghosts and the, the hecatone high race, the hundred-handed, the aliens, almost at opposite ends of a spectrum. Utter indeterminism, True. right, is the ghost, complete determinism, uh, and humans are somewhere in between. Uh, yeah. Still in structure. Also, I've always got ghosts be um, uh, mentally deficient. Um, it's hard to hold their attention. They tend to be repetitive. Uh, they're not, they can't lie. Uh, they, they're not very reliable. Um, I think I ultimately got that from uh, something in G.K. Chesterton he said that if you're being haunted by the ghost of your uncle George, your uncle George doesn't know anything about it. He's in heaven or hell. The thing you encounter as his ghost is kind of uh, like a shedded snakeskin, an animate shell that was cast off in the stress of death. And it can move and it can talk, sort of, but it's, it's not him. It's kind of a semi-animate fragment of him left over after the separate the traumatic separation of death yeah uh, fantastic um we also get uh a kind of dousing which is to say uh, uh vickery and castine have blood on cloth that's used as a it's kind of a, a dousing rod hung from, you know, hanging on in front of a motorcycle or from the yeah. mirror of the car, trying to track them. And so we have these wonderful, you know, playing out the logical consequences, these wonderful sequences where uh, they are in a sort of a shielded place. And, uh, and Vickery will deliberately soak uh, like paper towels in their blood and go out and stick it behind the bumper of a bus. Right. Uh, so that the bad guys tracking his blood are going to be chasing the bus right and at, at one point they uh get a roll of paper towels and put blood on and stick one down a manhole and throw yeah. one up on a taco bell roof and uh yeah. stick one behind the license plate of a car sort of like uh fighter planes throwing chaff of right. tinfoil right to distract um radar controlled missiles right um 
and the the they're in a car. So I love now I forget the name. There's a there's a character who owns a kind of a supernatural taxi service. Um, oh yeah, Galvan. Galvan, that's right. Um, and a woman. And right. um, uh, we see her in this book in the first uh, first moment. Uh, I think it's the O and I guys are going to talk to her. Maybe it's Victory, but but uh, her 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 guys have tire the tires off the car and they're gluing playing cards and pennies uh inside the time yes yes uh because uh, they're providing a a, a a magically shielded discreet transportation service for right yeah um yeah her her car service is for people who don't want to be tracked supernaturally yeah uh so yeah, there's uh, the air in the tires is um, carried in tanks from Nevada. Um, there's all kinds of measures to make the, the car not trackable supernaturally. Yeah. Um, the card and the penny are adding elements of indeterminacy, of randomness. Is Yeah, you, you've got the pennies rotating in the tires rapidly, and that would um, fox any sort of uh, outside attempts to track them. Uh, it'd be a overwhelming noise factor in trying to track the signal. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I, bet there, I bet there is such a car service. Oh, I bet there is. I, I'm very curious to know what it looks like. Uh, I, uh, but Madame Galvan wants to retain the ability, to, so she at one point lends them a car. And she's 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 sort of an ally, but not really, right. Uh, right? She wants to get paid, and she wants to get made whole, and and so uh, she's Vickery's been paying her for old debts, and then comes to her to borrow this uh, car. I forget what it is. It's like a big old Lincoln Continental or something, or a. a... Uh, I think it was a, yeah. She's got her own car, which is a giant old 1960 Cadillac. Yeah. And she loans them a Dodge, which. Um, it's not one of her most expensive cars, but she'll let them use it. Although she tells them, you know, don't you mess it up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so it's protected. And as long as they stay in it, right. um, the bad guys, the Naval intelligence guys can't track them by their blood, but right. if they get out to have lunch, for a half hour then for half an hour they are trackable and they really better get back in the car right right and, and uh throw out chaff when possible right uh and uh th there's a there the car has a car phone uh but it's a pretty distinctive kind of car phone uh it's a ghost right yeah she has she has planted a ghost inside the car uh it wouldn't work from outside but it's inside yeah. And uh, because she has a couple of finger bones of the ghost's original body in there. Yeah. And so, yeah, she can have the ghost begin talking if she needs to talk to Vickery and Castine. But sometimes the ghost overpowers Galvan's talk by its own uh, obsolete, extinct concerns. Yeah. Uh, and often it'll just be praying the rosary. Right, in Spanish, uh, I think, right? In Spanish, right. And sometimes it can actually control the steering wheel a little bit and try to drive back to where it used to live in Cerritos. 
and so Vickery has to hang on to the wheel because the ghost is trying to drive back to where it used to live. You got to have obstructions. You can't have anything work perfectly. Yeah, that's uh, that's good advice. That's good <laughs> advice. Um, well, is there anything else you'd like to uh, like to say about the book or the series? Uh, um, congratulations on it coming out. That's very exciting. Yeah, I can't wait uh, to see a copy. Um, just that it's real fun to be able to use Southern California. Hmm. Um, I've lived here since 1959. So even though I'm not a native, I've been a Californian for longer than a lot of Californians, a lot of natives, but um, Los Angeles and the desert. Um, 29 Palms, giant rock, right? Giant rock, yeah. Uh, which really is a, a baffling thing. Uh, the whole area of Southern California is so rich in anomalies, uh, grotesque, weird, uh, hard to explain, colorful history that um, it's been fun to use all that. Um, the LA Zoo, uh, the Griffith Observatory, the, the sunken city off San Pedro, um, Giant Rock and the Desert. Uh, the Lizard it, People formations under Los Angeles. And you know, I did not make that up. Yeah. That, that really is in the Los Angeles Times in 1934 uh, with a diagram. Uh, I just saw, okay. Right. Uh, I can use this. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, ultimately just that I have uh, found L.A. and Hollywood and the desert and the ocean to be just endlessly rich fields um, for, for setting stories. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Uh, well, I love them. This is a this is a great one. Uh, do you, I guess I should ask: Do you plan to write more Vickery and Castine stories? They are they are they are effectively one offs in a series. You yeah, theory, uh, you know. not instantly. Uh, right now, the next book is going to involve um, Emily Bronte and oh. her siblings, and uh, because again, it's a rich field. I was just reading about them for fun and I thought, what the hell are they up to really? I mean, I know what history says they were up to but it doesn't quite make sense. I'll figure out what they were really up to and it will involve the supernatural. Yeah. Um, and, and it'll be a return for me to historical mm -hmm. 19th century England. Uh, so I can have some fun with that for a while. Yeah. And uh, I, it, uh, yeah, it definitely, you read up on them and you think, okay, okay, there was something weird going on there. Um, and I do love their stuff. I mean, Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre and the tenant of Wildfell Hall, they were fascinating characters. These three uh, young ladies out in the middle of nowhere who, very isolated and secretly wrote 
these books that are cornerstones of English literature now. Yeah. Uh, and really died in Charlotte lived on, but um, the rest of them just died in obscurity, unknown, un, uh, unrecognized. Um, so yeah, it ought to be fun. Yeah. Well, I'll get you back to that kind of, you've done a lot uh, turning uh, people like uh, Byron uh, into, uh, well, Byron maybe is an easy one, but into action adventure heroes. Yeah. Uh, so I look forward to hearing, uh, hearing more about the Brontes. Yeah, it turns out there was a lot more going on there than history has managed to record. Oh, though, though I never violate history. I never have them not do something history says they did do uh, or be uh, not be somewhere that history said they were. Yeah. Sort of work in the gaps. You know, that's interesting. Uh, that's interesting because because uh, the, the the some of the material you have then is the gaps. And and the nice thing about a 19th century character is, is we do know a lot, but also we don't know a lot. Right. Um, if a future Tim Powers in a hundred years is going to have a hard time writing a story about a person today, uh, right? That it's successively micro-documented on social media. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and I, you're always on camera. And you're always on camera. I think it's about biographers too. Like uh, the task is just going to be a different task in a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. And there won't any more be books of the collected letters of somebody. Right. Nobody writes letters anymore. I mean, we've yeah. got, you know, collected letters of Hemingway, Byron, Lovecraft, um, very extensive, but there won't be, any, nobody's going to do the collected emails the, the of tweet. somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, all right. Well, uh, hey, Tim, thanks very much. Uh, once again, the book is uh, Stolen Skies out now from Bain Books and Hardcover. Uh, as well as ebook and all the formats. Tim, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. And now another installment in John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Seven. So, what evil inventions are we dreaming up today? Tyler asked, rubbing his hands together in glee. <laughs> Dealing with bitchy AIs and vice presidents was work. Visiting the Night Wolves was how he paid himself for it. Night Wolves was technically the Granatica Design and Prototyping Center. Fourteen Terran engineers and draftsmen had been shipped off to live on Granatica on a more or less permanent assignment. Their job was to prototype systems, all sorts of systems, but mostly those with a military bent. The idea was to make systems that were a combination of Terran and Glatun technology as much as possible things that could be produced on Earth, or at least by humans, for what was shaping up to be a big war. One of the problems was that the Glatun didn't want anyone to have ships as good as theirs. They were superior in three ways, armor, speed, and firepower. 
which pretty much defined superior in a warship. The armor was a matrix of fullerene and other substances. That was impossible to duplicate without the codes for the fabers. Glatun warships could maneuver at over 400 gravities. Commercial systems were relegated to 10 gravities of inertial control, and they sported 500 terawatt gamma-ray lasers as their main armament. None of the systems humans had access to could produce more than a 5-megawatt laser. The Nightwolves' main mission, which was only discussed when Granatica couldn't listen, was to design around the lockouts. Oh, nothing we work on here is evil, Mr. Vernon, Kelly Ketterman said, smiling. Kelly was the managing design chief for the Nightwolves, a large title for a very short, even elfin, blonde. All of it has purely commercial or emergency purposes that are for the betterment of all mankind. Your mission statement in a nutshell, Tyler said. And what have you created? The first item is a new, improved VDA mirror, Kelly said, bringing up a schematic. It is lighter, stronger, more accurate, and has better heat transmission. All of the materials, including now the superconductor, are producible by human manufacture. Granatica's main contribution was in bringing in some engineering we didn't previously have access to and building the prototype. You're welcome. Granatica said. This is the sort of thing I enjoy. We're working on an upgraded system, Kelly said, for extreme mining. We're hoping that it will take up to 100 times the amount of energy of a VDA. Ugh, Tyler said, grunting. Yes, that's what we said, Kelly said, dimpling. If it works... It is going to be great for mining. Uh, yeah, Tyler said. Great. The first ship design is an emergency response shuttle, Kelly said, bringing up a picture of what looked very much like a rectangular box with some jet engines on it. The prototype is complete and works very well. The ERS has a crew of two and can carry up to 38 personnel or 18 casualties. The forward assembly consists of four magnetic grapnels, a bivalve ramp system that works to prevent damage to the airlock or for deployment or rescue on land, and a multi-connector expansion airlock. If there is no standard airlock available, the MEA permits the ERS to dock directly to a distressed ship's hull so that rescuers can cut into it to rescue stranded personnel. The ERS has two external mounts for searchlights, that can generate up to five terawatts of raw light for searching. I thought that was a bit much, Granatica said, but that was the specification. I wouldn't want to be looking into a five terawatt light, that's for sure. Nor would I, Kelly said. The ERS has 20 gravities of acceleration, so it can move in and out of orbit rapidly. This, of course, would place some strain on passengers, so they're are conformal seats that can be moved in and out. So it can either be an open box for carrying emergency supplies or with the acceleration couches of very fast rescue ship. The ERS can operate for up to 70 hours on its own at a cruising acceleration of five gravities. 
and has bunks and support facilities on board for the two-member crew. Thus, a single ERS can cruise out to Neptune orbit and back on onboard fuel, just in case we have a ship stranded out by Neptune. At maximum drive, it exhausts onboard fuel in about 10 hours. I can think of thousands of purposes for that, Tyler said. Wish we'd had a bunch of them during the plagues. We probably ought to make... Lots, Kelly said. We already have a contract from the USSN for 300. Thank you, Granatica, and my stockholders thank you as well. You're welcome, Mr. Vernon. Most of the portions of the ERS are being made by subcontractors, Kelly continued. Final assembly takes place here, and there are certain components Granatica can just make better, faster, and cheaper. Essentially, we're feeding her components, and Granatica puts out the finished product. Any problems with uh, integration? Tyler asked. Not integration, Granatica answered. Quality control, yes. We think we fix that issue by a change of providers, Kelly said. And unfortunately, we still have to pull most manufactured equipment out of the gravity well on Earth. Earth's a bad enough target, Tyler said. I don't think I want to build any space factories, not in the solar system. The problem remains, Kelly said, and we simply don't have enough space-capable shipping. Granatica, Night Wolves, and Apollo Mining, therefore, reinvented an old idea. Liberty ships? Tyler asked. Yes, sir, Kelly said, frowning. I was going to ask about those, Tyler said. It was on my mind. Continue. When Apollo mines most asteroids... There is, unfortunately, a good bit left over, Kelly said. Mostly silica. We're using a good bit of that in the solar system on the VLA, Tyler said. They're doing silica mirrors with a thin nickel or aluminum backing. Yes, sir. They're doing the same design here, Kelly said. They still make more melted silica than they can use. Together with some Apollo engineers, we came up with this. The picture looked like a mason jar with a robot spider on one end. The hull is mostly silica, Kelly said. We've set up a production facility that turns those out in large quantities. Then a lift and drive engine is installed that has a low but sufficient drive. Specifically, two gravities of acceleration with a full 100,000 ton load, higher empty. Maximum acceleration empty is 10 gravities, since that is the maximum inertial control available to us. The bottleneck is the lift and drive systems. We're having most of the raw equipment built on Earth, again, and assembling it here. Silica is not a good structural material, Tyler said. Glass hulls? Not entirely silica, Kelly said, smiling. They have wound-in carbon nanotube. That's another bottleneck. But Granatica made a faber that produces carbon nanotube winding in good quantity. It's basically an old-fashioned version of the Gorku spinners, Granatica said. And mine can handle anything that's got carbon in it. Apollo broke up a carbonaceous asteroid, and we're turning out more nanotube than you can believe.
We've been gluing it on the outside of the shuttles, since if you figure in a space disaster, there's probably a lot of debris flying around. We don't have people to run them, unfortunately, Tyler said, sighing. They don't take much, Grenadica said. Three watch crew, three engineering, and a few support. They've got their own gravitic loading and unloading system. Send us some personnel, and we'll have so many ships going back and forth between here and Seoul, you won't believe it. Alas, we still don't have the trade, Tyler said. But we will. This is great, but it's got to be looked at as a prototype for now. I'll get some people working on crews, though. We do need to get the components moving back and forth. It can lift out of the grab well? Easily, Kelly said. The hulls have the added benefit of being convertible to helium-3 tankers with some minor modifications. We've also looked at modifications for in-space repair and support ships. She carefully had not said fleet colliers. Well, we still don't have much in the way of ships that need support, Tyler said. Anything else? A new tug system, Kelly said. This is purely for Apollo mining at the present. It has 400 gravities of acceleration, but, of course, can't actually use that for internal delta V. It also has a very wide angle for presser or tractor beams. Apollo has been doing a lot of space shaping, and they needed something that could generate a wide presser beam. The tug is capable of maintaining a 100-gravity presser over a 300-yard band. Tyler didn't see the military application and raised an eyebrow. Purely for Apollo? Tyler said. Nobody else needs them, Kelly said, shrugging. Apollo gave us the specs and we figured it out, didn't we, Granatica? It was different, the AI said. Most races don't mine the way that you do. Anything else? Last, we have a support ship for the emergency shuttles, Kelly said, smiling slightly. The problem was making a ship capable of keeping up. That required conformal systems throughout the ship, as well as acceleration modifications. I'm not sure how long I'd want to take ten gravities, Tyler said. I took seven for twenty minutes one time, and it nearly killed me. Hopefully not for long. Kelly said. The ship has launchers for small buoys, remote sensing platforms. Those have been designed for 600 gravities of acceleration for rapid and widespread dissemination. Better hope they don't run into anything, Granatica said, because they're an awful lot like missiles. That's what I base them off of, an old missile design. Slap a heavy warhead on them, and they're going to play Mary Hobb if they, for example, run into a Horvath ship. Just the kinetic impact after 30 seconds running will blow through Horvath screens. But since they're sensor buoys, Tyler said, frowning. All good, Grenatica said. Hey, how you humans want to do search and rescue is up to you. And what you want to mount for sensors is also up to you. The ship has hard points for mounting more big flashlights, and you can point the spotlight on something at up to three light minutes. Very accurate spotlight. 
Since that's a long way away, it can be dialed up to a three-megawatt laser and gravitic sensors to spot anything that needs rescuing. Up to seven light seconds out, they're very sensitive. With a little triangulation, which the system can do using sensors on multiple ships in movement, or with the sensors on shuttles or remotes on the buoys, they can spot even a hypercom node that's active within two light seconds, or, say, something accelerating on a collision course. They also can handle up to 100 sensor buoys in movement at the same time. And Aegis search and rescue ship, Tyler said, nodding. Very nice platform. More a frigate, Kelly said. They're smaller than the Constitution class, also faster and more capable. BAE is just going to love the hell out of that, Tyler said, grinning. Not that it's a warship, of course. Of course, Granatica said. Granatica, Tyler said musingly, how big are the fabbers you made to make nanotubes? No, let me say this a different way. Can you make some fabbers to pre-separate the carbon from a carbonaceous asteroid? I can do it, Granatica said. That's going to be a fairly significant energy penalty. It's going to cost more. And I'll have to rearrange the schedule. Do it, Tyler said. Anything else? That's about it, Kelly said, suddenly looking nervous. That's all good, Tyler said, nodding. All good. Thank your team for me. Permission to speak freely, sir, Kelly said. What is this, the military? Tyler said, smiling. Of course. You look tired as hell, the manager said. No offense, but you look as if you could use a break. I've got a lot of pressures, Tyler said, shrugging. I can take it. I've learned to take it. But, Granatica, between you, Kelly, and me, I'm serious about doing the fuel mine in three years. I'm hoping we have three. How was Wolf? Brian asked. Dr. Foster had stepped down as head of Apollo Mining nearly three years before. There was a progression to management. Some people were great with small startups but couldn't handle big business. Others were best at handling large-scale operations and were driven crazy by startups. Apollo and LFD Corp. were, without question, big business. Tyler and Brian had talked it over, and then three people had taken over various bits of the management. There was an MBA with extensive experience of terrestrial mining and materials sales as the CEO, an Army general as chief of operations, mostly devoted to the increasingly complex task of moving light around, and even a chief science officer who oversaw production of the sapple components and an increasingly large team of people who studied better ways to move it and use it. Brian's title was now Chief of Special Projects. That way, he always had new things to wrap his head around, and Tyler had somebody's head to throw them at. Busy, Tyler said. I think I need to get a ship made. You have a lot of ships, Brian pointed out. I mean, if you count all the tugs. I mean for me, Tyler said. I've been putting it off forever, but 
if I'm going to be running back and forth between here and Wolf, running around poking my nose into people's business, I think I need a ship. A shuttle, at least. The Night Wolves have a pretty good design. I think I may have one sent to Burger Boat. They know anything about space? Brian asked. Not a thing, Tyler said. Time they found out. And taking the shuttle not only takes time I can't afford, I'm just getting too old to sit next to a hulking miner who's looking forward to getting back to Mama-san and some real showers. Okay. We've got a problem. I live to serve, Brian said, grinning. Steel. Hard, Brian said. We've been looking at making a smelter. Problem is... Most of our stuff is mobile enough to run if the Horvath come through the gate. A smelter isn't going to be really mobile. Right, Tyler said. And what I'm talking about is going to be too big for a smelter anyway. You've seen the general design for the wolf mine, I take it? Yep, Brian said. Those support plates are going to be fun to make. They'll have to be welded. Not if we can cast them in one piece, Tyler said. I was thinking about it on the shuttle back. What's steel? Iron, Brian said. Carbon. Various trace elements. If you want stainless, which we do. A bunch of chromium or nickel. About 40% by weight, if I recall the class. Okay, Tyler said. Think of a McGriddle. A what? Brian said, chuckling. A chupa queso, then, Tyler said. Take a plate of iron, more or less pure, which we have, Brian said, nodding. Then layer it on both sides with crushed carbon. Mix in the trace elements you need. Then, on the outside, smaller plates of chromium or nickel. Heat. Melt, let collapse into a ball through microgravity. May work, Brian said, except the carbon's going to get very kinetically active and tend to move away. Ah, Tyler said, why I mentioned a McGriddle. Seal the edges of the outer plates. That will keep the carbon contained. How big we talking? Brian asked, making some notes. Two kilometers, Tyler said. The final form. Sort of like a washer with a 100-meter hole in the middle. And about 30 meters thick. Two of those. We can figure out how to make the bracers if we can do the washers. That's an interesting project, Brian said, grinning. We ordered these new tugs from the Night Wolves. Yeah, Tyler said. What's up with that? We needed bigger fields for shaping, Brian said, still making notes. We're doing a lot of spin processing. We need wider fields to handle big projects. This is a good example. To get this thing even, we're going to have to shape it in three dimensions. But with the tugs, we can do that. We're calling them potter's hands. I'm not going to start with two kilometers, mind you, but BAE has been screaming for steel for the Constitutions. We're having to carry it up out of the well. This might be the answer. Call me when you got the material spun up, 
Tyler said. I'd like to see that. Will do. Anything else? About a thousand things, Tyler said. Oh, Starin's getting married. You should be getting an invitation. I put you down for one. Starin? Brian asked, confused. Younger daughter? Tyler said. The tomboy? I don't think you've ever mentioned her name, Brian said. I knew you had two daughters, but that's about all. Really? Tyler said. Not even when we were melting? Icarus? Brian said. No. And we talked about a lot of things, but not family. I'd sort of wondered. Ah, Tyler said. Two children. Christy and Starin. Christy's getting her MBA at the moment. Wharton, which makes me very proud. Starin wasn't big on school. She also wanted to be her own person, which meant she was working as a vet's assistant. She's marrying a guy named Thomas Schneider. He's a mechanical engineering grad student. <laughs> I guess he's going to want a job, which is no big deal. You haven't met him, have you? Brian said. I'm supposed to be meeting them this weekend, Tyler said. We're having dinner. When I met you, they were still kids. I really hadn't realized it had been that long. But interesting, Tyler said, as in we live in interesting times. And on that note, I now have to catch another shuttle so I can make a meeting in St. Louis. Have fun, Brian said. And Tyler? Yeah. All work and no play? When I find somebody who's willing to think big, I'll think about taking a vacation, Tyler said. In the meantime, I'm managing. That was another installment in John Ringo's Live Free or Die, and that's it for the news. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to DJ Butler and praise, thanks, and gratitude to Tim Powers. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afshirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.